Hi there. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and I am so happy that you're here today. Thank you for joining me. I wanted to share before we get started that if you are a fan of this podcast and you're thinking, hmm, how can I help Conversations with a Wounded Healer? One way that you could help us is by joining us on Patreon and pledging a donation monthly. So Patreon is a place where you can you can give money to all sorts of things, and Wounded Healer is one of those areas where you can donate. And you can't just do a one-time donation, but you can do a very, very small donation every month, even as low as a dollar. And every little bit truly, truly, truly helps because this shit ain't free, you guys. So if you want to find us on Patreon, you can just go to patreon.com, search for Conversations with a Wounded Healer, or if you search for Wounded Healer, it's W-O-U-N-D-E-D-H-E-A-L-R. All right, without further ado, let us get to my guest today. So Veronica Valley has been joyously sober since May 2nd, 2000. Originally from the UK, she's a psychotherapist, emotional freedom technique practitioner, recovery coach, and author of the books, Why You Drink and How to Stop, and Get Sober, Get Free. She is also co-host of the podcast, Soberful Podcast. Veronica passionately believes that anyone can recover from an alcohol problem if they are given the right tools and support. And I also agree with Veronica. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Veronica Valley. Hello, Veronica. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. And we've been trying to make this work. So I'm so glad we finally get to chat. (laughs) I reached out to you a little while ago. Well, actually, no, first, let's have you tell people who you are and what you do, and then I'll tell them how I found you. (laughs) Okay, so I am a former clinical psychotherapist. I've been sober for almost 20 years, 20 years, May 2nd. I worked in private practice and treatment centers in the UK for many years and different areas of criminal justice and youth offending. And then I came to America with my American husband and started really doing everything online, wrote a book, a couple of books, Why You Drink and How to Stop, and started blogging. And then that more people wanted to work with me. So I really work as a sober coach now, an EFT practitioner, because it just gives me more freedom to do that. So I've been doing that for 18, 19 years. EFT, like energy, like tapping? Oh, emotional freedom technique. Yeah. Awesome. So I had reached out to you because there was an opinion piece in the New York Times that was talking about 12 step as really patriarchal and not safe for women and all sorts of allegations that when I read it, even though I'm not a substance abuser in the program myself, I'm a Grateful Al-Anon member. I was offended. I was offended on, on behalf of my clients for whom it's helped so much. And I didn't really know what to do with that feeling I was having. And I talked about it with a friend who actually got sober using this person's work. And so we were just talking about kind of the tone of anger that that we just really weren't resonating in that piece. And I think she found your writing that was essentially a response to that piece. And you fucking nailed it. (laughs) Like every single piece that had made me upset, you really, you really spoke to that. And I'd, I'd love for you to share your thoughts about how 12 step can be helpful. Because what you did, I think was hold both hold that it can be unsafe for some people in some places, but you differentiate the fellowship from the program. So anything you want to share around that, I think is super helpful. 
Yeah, thank you. I got a big response from that piece. And and, and really, it was sort of the New York Times op-ed by Holly Whitaker was just really the, it was the final straw really for me. Mm-hmm, I just had seen mm-hmm. online for many years, just mm-hmm. real misinformation about what the 12-step program actually is. And every so often I would get into a social media discussion or yeah. argument and say, actually, it's not that, it's this, actually, that's incorrect. And I, for a long time, I'd actually thought about, I'm just going to do or write something about this just to go, look, here's the thing. And then I wouldn't have to do that anymore. And I actually, it's funny, I recorded a podcast episode and I was really dissatisfied with it and I didn't put it out. And then I was on vacation in Cancun and this piece came out and I was like, this is dangerous. It's all based on misinformation. None of this is accurate or true. Yet people are now going to read this on a very broad platform and go, oh, like, not going near that. Wow, that just sounds awful. I mean, and I also want to say there is definitely some criticism of the 12-step fellowships that's very warranted. And that person's experience, I, I can certainly feel that that was her experience. And it is based on some really just unattractive stuff that happens in the fellowship. But here's the thing. The first mistake most people make is there is a difference between the fellowship and the program. And the fellowship is just the people. And what tends to happen is people go to a meeting, and I think the person who read it has been to maybe three meetings or something, six, not many. You hear a lot of stuff, 90% of which is misinformation. 90% is usually misinformation. People just repeat stuff they've heard somewhere else in a meeting, blah, 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 and someone else repeats it and off, off they go. And there is some unhealthy behavior without a doubt. And they think that that is the program and that's unattractive. Now, I don't blame them for that because if that was the program, it is unattractive. (laughs) Right. And all of that kind of stuff. I have two kind of bugbears and it is like you need to understand the difference between the program and the fellowship and where you get your information from. So that's where I wrote that piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing is that kind of drives me slightly crazy is I see a lot of like AA worked for me. That's where I got sober. I went for three years, but then this is really unattractive and I don't like that. And there's it. So I mm-hmm. left and I'm like, great, good for you. Really great that you went, took what you needed and then buggered off. I have been active in 12-step programs my entire sobriety. I'm still am to this mm-hmm. day. And I'm going to tell you, I hit that wall too. I hit that wall of this is unacceptable. That's not okay. I don't like that behavior. That's dangerous or unsafe behavior. And what I did, and I it was I went and started a meeting. Right. Yeah. And I made it really safe. And I will tell you, I have started women's meetings and mm-hmm. I've started mixed meetings. And I've had individuals attend those meetings who I know are unsafe individuals and I've asked them to leave because I protect my people. So for me, there was just so much, you know, in AA, I'm not speaking for anybody. I'm. This is simply yep. my opinion based on yep. my experience and my research. Mm-hmm. But AA was never going to write a rebuttal to that. Right. So that right. misinformation right. Mm-hmm. was going to continue. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to write the rebuttal with the facts. And I got a massive response, massive, massive, massive response. So I don't want to say that Holly's experience wasn't, I mean, like I can understand, I see a lot of people have that experience, Mm -hmm. but people have that experience because they're just going off the misinformation and people freaking leave. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen if everyone leaves? Right, (laughs) right. Absolutely. And I can definitely recognize the changes that happened for me as a therapist who's not in recovery from substances and hearing my clients talk about meetings, right? Like in school, they make you go to three meetings and I did that and la-di-da, whatever. 
And the things that I would maybe support my client saying that was misinformation. And it wasn't until I joined Al-Anon where I really understood the actual 12 steps themselves more and then could share my perspective from that place that was so different. And I think it's all part of really encouraging people who are doing addiction work to be doing your own work, because if we're divorced from that and, and divorced from a real understanding of what that is, it's hard to help clients make informed choices around it. Yeah. So here's the thing about the program. And I am deeply feminist. And I think I've known you for 10 minutes. And I know that you are too. (laughs) (laughs) Was it the blue hair that tipped you off? (laughs) Just have this vibe. (laughs) Right. So I have been on a spiritual journey for my whole life, looking to reconnect deeply within myself with God Mm -hmm. within. And so I've read quite a bit. I don't, you know, say that I'm an expert, but what is fascinating to me about the origins of the 12 step is you can trace the origins of the 12 steps to the Gnostic religions that Mm -hmm. existed before Christianity. And Christianity actually evolved out of the Gnostic religions. If you read, oh gosh, I'll try and remember the guy's name, but there's a great guy who's at UNC who's written a lot of books about this. And the Gnostic religions were very feminist. Women were spiritual teachers and spiritual leaders and very much an equal part of the Gnostic religions and churches. And they had a process of self-reflection that's very similar to the fourth and tenth step. So for me, there is a feminist origin to the 12 steps, and they are simply ancient spiritual wisdom. They're not remotely original. They're ancient spiritual wisdom that are mechanical in their process. They're not even very woo. They're not that far away from CBT or REBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy and rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is the mechanical process of doing the fourth step inventory and then the continued 10th step inventory is a mechanism to reveal yourself to yourself. So through that continued process of revealing to myself that I am the architect of my own misery. And what I mean by that is that my therapeutic practice is very grounded in it's not what happens to you, it's how you choose to respond to what happens to you. So it's looking where we have continued the hurt to ourselves, continued the abuse to ourselves, when we have ignored warning signs, where we've tried to control people, where we have wanted people to be the way that we want it to be, we want outcomes to be that we, and, and then blamed everyone and the world for it not being that way. That was revealed to me in this process and it was quite remarkable for me to see I have got to change my response to the world and other people. I have got to do things differently. I have to take responsibility for the experience I want to have. So the the 12 steps are an ancient spiritual wisdom. So that process of, you know, clearing up our past with the fourth step, revealing our character defects, again, that's one of the abuses in the fellowship is, you know, I've seen people given like, here's a page of 500 character defects. Check all of the ones you have. Right. There's only four. There's only four. And that's Mm. selfishness, self-seeking, which is an old fashioned word for manipulation, dishonesty and fear. And all of these lists of character defects are just subsidiaries of that. Like jealousy is Mm. just fear. Mm -hmm. Controlling is just fear. So Mm -hmm. anger is just fear announced. They all ground down to those four. So 
that's a whole thing that makes it abusive. Like, oh my God, I'm such mm-hmm, a terrible mm-hmm. person. I have like 364 character defects. Like how bad do I feel knowing I have that? Actually, I just have four. And when it's revealed to me that I'm acting out of fear or I'm acting out of selfishness or I'm manipulative or I'm dishonest in my intentions or my my words, that's the root of usually my problem. And guess what? That's what I have the power over. I have power over that. I can change that. So that's how we use that process. And and I don't think that that's very widely understood, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And none of those character defects are unique to people with addiction issues. That's literally the human condition. And substance abuse just tends to be one of the coping skills that people use after trauma. Absolutely. It Mm -hmm. really, I mean, I feel like we're the lucky ones. This is the human condition. I've said that. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are the lucky ones. The human condition is is the disconnection from self and that we live in two worlds. We live in the external world and we live in the internal world. And what happens is we get lost in the external world. We just get lost. Mm-hmm. We get lost in alcohol. We get lost in people's opinions. We like, mm-hmm. get lost in believing we have to be good enough and thin enough and pretty enough and fit a certain way and we get lost. Mm-hmm. And the 12 steps are a return to the internal world. Mm-hmm. And the big book describes an emotional rearrangement that is sudden, Mm. dramatic, and revolutionary. That's why I describe them as being mechanical. The Mm -hmm. the mechanics, they're just cogs in a wheel. If you just do the cogs in a wheel, they will create an emotional rearrangement in you. And that is so profound and life-altering that it shifts how you see everything. There is no other word in the English language to describe that experience than spiritual and from source or God or whatever word feels right for you. Yeah. I'd love to dig into your story. And I'm guessing we'll weave more of this conversation about the 12 steps into it. But how did you get to where you are? You said you got sober 20 years ago. I'd love to hear what what led up to that. So I grew up in quite a dysfunctional home, like many people. I had from a very young age had this very deep awareness there was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. And like many people my age in the UK, I was able to go out in bars and drink at 15 in our culture, alcohol is presented as you are going to drink, right? It's like you, mm-hmm. one day you have a driver's right. license and one day you will not just drink alcohol, but you'll abuse alcohol. That's how it's presented in our culture. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't wait to do that. Alcohol felt like the solution immediately for me. It, mm-hmm. I felt comfortable in my own skin. And I was a blackout alcoholic drinker from the day one. I have a memory of being 15 years old, lying in the gutter outside a pub covered in vomit coming out of blackout with the owner throwing a bucket of water over me. And I remember thinking like, there's something wrong with this. And then being told what a great night out we'd had. And my brain went, oh, okay, that's... That was good. That's a great night out. That's what equals Mm -hmm. a great night out. Getting drunk to blackout equals a great night out. That's Mm -hmm. I go, I want to have a great night out. My brain goes, oh, this is what you do. I went into drug-induced psychosis at 18 through hallucinogenics. And that triggered auditory hallucinations. I was suicidal and thought I was going crazy for about six months. Mm. I had chronic anxiety and panic attacks. Very common part of most people who have an addiction problem have anxiety and panic attacks. Mm. And that's when my drinking shifted at 18 
to like just binge drinking to drinking to cope. So I began to drink before events, before things earlier in the day. I still, right until the day I got sober, was never a daily drinker. However, I was always using something to manage myself. I was, mm-hmm. uh, I was always on some kind of prescription drug, smoking, unhealthy behavior with men and money and all that kind of stuff. So I was always mm-hmm. using external things to fix my internal condition. And I spent 10 years looking for help. 10 years, like going to doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists and churches and anywhere where I thought there might be a solution. And I would present with my mental health problem mm-hmm. and minimize the drink problem. I never, mm-hmm. it never occurred to me, never occurred to me I had an alcohol problem. I would drink and I would always use cocaine and I'm really grateful to cocaine because it finished me off, finished mm. me off really quickly, really early. I think without cocaine, I'd have gone on drinking for a good decade longer. And eventually... Well, I, so in my craziness, I thought that one of the, I couldn't be in groups of people working in groups of people was really hard on me because of the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So in my insanity, I thought I'll be a therapist. I'll help people. And the course at my local college was an addictions counseling course. And I thought I'll do that. So I started that and was kind of like still sleepwalking through my life at this point. Mm. The decision to stop drinking was not like, oh my God, I have to stop drinking. It slowly crept up on me. And I thought, I'll just stop and see what that's like. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just go to one of these AA meetings to see what these poor people are like that I'm going to help. <laughs> and I went to the AA meetings and I didn't relate, didn't mm. identify with anybody. I was 27. I got sober in a big fellowship where people had done drug smuggling and had 10 DUIs and like gone to prison. And it wasn't until I heard someone talk about fear. They were frightened of everything and anything and nothing. And that is why they drank. I'll never forget just sitting there thinking, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally thought I was the only person on the planet who felt that way. And it all crystallized for me in that moment that I drank to cope with my fear and how I felt mm-hmm. and that there was a solution for that. From there, I, I started working the 12 steps and getting additional help. And 20 years later, here I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that unknown unnamed dread that Mm. I hear from my clients over and over and over again. That makes so much sense. And I think I've heard you say this on your podcast, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've heard you say you didn't necessarily suffer some horrendous trauma as a kid. A lot of what you experienced was developmental trauma, just parents not really getting you. I don't know if you can talk more about how that contributed to the way you moved through the world. Yeah, very much so. And goodness knows I have done hundreds of hours of therapy on the relationship I have with my mom. Not much of my dad because he was just absent. But it's really interesting because, yeah, my mom loved me, but she had her own trauma and mental health issues that were never dealt with. So she had very limited tools. Mm -hmm. I was loved. And I've been able to access that more and more and more, the more sober and emotionally sober I've got. She was visiting last October and she's 80 now and I have two children Mm. and she's a really nice grandmother. And um, she said something to my youngest son. He was doing like, he was like four at the time. He's like a boy. God knows what, he's something silly that he was doing. And uh, she went, oh, why is he doing that? What's wrong with him? Mm. And I had this kind of like lightning bulb moment where I was like, she used to say that to me all the time. Yeah. So that feeling of there's something wrong with me It was Mm -hmm. simply my caregiver used to say that to me, what's wrong with you? And then you Mm -hmm. think, I don't know what's wrong. There must be something wrong with me. 
and I kind of had this one visit. I mean, I've noticed it over the years a lot, but I noticed several kind of things that she used to just say to me all the time. It's just subconscious programming. It's all mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. I was programmed. My mother's very negative and very fear-based. There's little incidences I know where she was proud of me. My mum's mm-hmm. primary purpose in life is to find things to be frightened about so she can warn you. I wonder if that's a product of World War II, like the children of World War II, right? Do you know what it is? I've thought about this so much because I've seen this in so many clients with parents of the similar age. It's yep. not World War II, it's the Cold War. Oh, so my mom yeah. was born in 1939. So she went through the mm. war with a very small child. So that was normal for her. I think it's the Cold War. Yeah. And that they went through the Cold War with this real fear that everything could end soon. Definitely the legacy of the Second War, World War, of like this awful thing can happen. But I think it's much more to do with the Cold War and this fear of like fear of something really bad is going to happen. And it was a very existential, like yeah. if Russia dropped the bomb on us. Yep. we'd all be dead. Like that's such yep. a massive existential fear. Mm-hmm. So I think that they were like trying to control the little things. Like, you know, I could tell my mom anything, anything like, oh, I've won a million dollars or I'm going to the movies mm-hmm. tonight. And my mom would mm-hmm. come back immediately with five top things to be worried about regarding that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I relate to that. And my, <laughs> my husband's mom relate to that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned in that in your relationship with your mom, recognizing your emotional sobriety. I'd love for you to talk about emotional sobriety as opposed to physical sobriety. Yeah, because they're different. Just stopping drinking is not enough. Because when we drink, it just takes up a certain amount of bandwidth in our head. Mm -hmm. Thinking about drinking, thinking about not drinking, drinking and being hungover takes up a considerable amount of bandwidth. So we can still function. Like I still got a degree I still mm-hmm. got jobs. I traveled around like, you know, our functioning is very, some people can earn millions of dollars and be on TV and do all mm-hmm. sorts of things. But what we can't do is emotionally grow because mm-hmm. we don't have the bandwidth to emotionally grow. So when we get sober, all this growth that we should have had, because that's just part of growing and getting older, we miss out on, you know, relationships, it really shows up in relationships, all of that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So for me, when I stopped drinking, and I sort of did the steps of a fashion, and for me, it really showed up in romantic relationships. So I was incapable of having a romantic relationship. I had a very set pattern that no matter what knowledge I had in my head, I couldn't change. Yeah. So I would attract a man who would be dazzled by me and think I was amazing. We would have this intense relationship and I would think that's it. That's the one. And then he would begin to pull away. So I was anxiously attached. I always attracted Mm -hmm. avoidance. The same thing over and over. And so when that happened in sobriety, I was suicidal. I Mm. went into a black hole of despair because I was about 30 at the time. The pain was so intense and I didn't want to drink and I knew I wasn't going to drink, but I was consciously making a decision not to kill myself because the pain. Mm. Now, what that pain is original pain. It's not pain from the stupid guy I'd known for six weeks. Right. It was original abandonment pain from my parents that I had never, never healed. So when that happened to me when I was about three years sober, it motivated me to do deep, 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 hardcore work on myself with the 12 steps with therapy, with a bunch of different things to change my emotional response to the world. Emotionally sober is really doing the deep work to know and understand yourself 
why you keep repeating the same patterns, healing trauma from the past, all of that kind of stuff, just having boundaries. Ultimately, the destination is about having appropriate emotional responses to Mm -hmm. events. Instead of some guy I'd known for six weeks, like deciding he didn't want to date me anymore, me being suicidal. That's not an appropriate emotional response. Right. And I ask this question a lot just because I'm a person who has this like deep desire internally to wake up and then this wish for everybody around me to wake up. And that wish turns into judgment (laughs) very often. But so I often ask the question of my guests, what is it that you think has people go towards awakening and some people run away from it? You know, that's a really great question because I see this happen in clients, people I've worked with, this is what I believe it is. What happens is when we start this process of being sober and working on the stuff that's inside of us, we eventually come to the edge of a cliff. Yeah. And when we come to the edge of a cliff, the realization that occurs is, oh my gosh, I have to be completely responsible for the experience I want to have. And you have a choice. You can either jump off the cliff and pray that you are caught or you have to start going backwards into your blame story. And I remember that feeling. And I've seen so many people get to that point where it isn't what happened to you. It's how you chose to respond to what happened to you. You have to be responsible for the experience you want to have. And I think that for me was terrifying and I did not want to do it. But I didn't want to go back more. Going back to how I had been living before, I mean, I really went to the brink of madness on many points. I felt Mm -hmm. like I was like about to be sectioned. And I think the only reason that I never really went fully kind of mad was because then my mother would be responsible for me if I was hospitalized or sectioned or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And I couldn't let that happen. So I couldn't go back. I had to jump off this cliff into the knowledge of knowing I had to be completely responsible for the experience I wanted to have in my life. And that's like, right now, we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus. I don't wish this. This isn't an experience Mm -hmm. I want to have. Within this, I get to choose my response. I mean, I could drink through it. I could watch Netflix for 10 hours through it. I could eat through it. Or I can choose to take care of my mental health in every 24-hour period so I come through this strong and I exit this in a better condition than I entered it. I want to tease out some things in that because I'm always listening with the ear of, of some of my audience. And I'm sure that some people will hear that like, well, I have to take responsibility for my trauma and I have to take responsibility for this. And what I've come to learn in my study of trauma is agency instead of responsibility. Because I think responsibility puts undue pressure on a young system to try to be able to survive something without using unhealthy coping mechanisms. And sometimes we revert to that as adults, right? Like (laughs) we are all struggling right now. And I'll tell you, I'm eating my way through it right now. And I'm trying to have the compassion with myself to not judge that that's the best I can do in this moment. And I have agency to potentially make other choices when I'm ready to do so. So I just, I don't want people to hear like, well, you're responsible for your trauma. And I'm sure you have thoughts on that as well. Yeah, no, and that's a good point. And and that's certainly not what I mean. So in terms of trauma, whatever happened to you, my goodness, it's never your fault. And for a lot of times with trauma, it's involuntary, our reaction Mm -hmm, to it. mm -hmm. And they're just coping mechanisms to stay alive. However, at some point, I believe most people get an opportunity 
where they're shown that there could be a different way. Yes. Mm-hmm. That there is mm-hmm. a support group or a mm-hmm. therapist or a meeting or mm-hmm. something. Then we can make the choice. So we can continue to choose to not get help and tell ourselves the story that nothing will help. Or we can choose to take a little risk with that nice therapist or that support group or that mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. So when I talk about choice, I mean that. Mm-hmm. So I'm a great believer that we are all doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. And right now, or in any given day, depending on whether we have the virus or not, we can only do what's good enough. Right. So when I haven't had much sleep and <laughs> I haven't exercised and I haven't taken care of myself, my good enough today is very different mm-hmm. from my good enough next week. The first couple of days of lockdown, I was really struggling. I was all over the place, very distracted. And on the third day, I went, you know what? This is not going to work because this is going to go on for weeks and you are really going to get in a bad place if you continue like that. Mm -hmm. And the next day I started like I was doing this thing called the 9 a.m. club. I don't know if I'm still doing it by the time this recording goes out. Who who knows? But it's just like a quick 15 minute EFT video for people to calm themselves and all Mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff. And the reason I did that was it forced me to be up Mm -hmm. and showered and makeup and kids breakfast away and teeth brushed by 9am every morning. Mm -hmm. So that's the experience I wanted to have within the coronavirus. Now it's not Mm -hmm. to say I didn't struggle for two or three days before I got there. Right. So it is about agency, but it Mm -hmm. is always about, I really... I mean, yes, we can go into a deeper discussion where lots of groups are marginalized and there's not enough help. For sure, there's all mm-hmm, of that. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of coming back to the 12-step programs. If there's nothing else, there is a church basement somewhere near you mm-hmm. where within that church basement, there's probably a couple of people who are pretty solid and will help you. So we can make choices to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I've spent most of my time working with addiction. And over the 10 years that I've done that, I've developed this internal knowing when I need to stop doing the work and the client needs to step in and do it, right? So there's this place where I know you internally have to make the choice that you want to get sober and I'm just going to be over here waiting when you're ready to take it. And with trauma work, I haven't developed like that line yet internally. So for me, there's still this kind of it's almost like over empathizing with the experience of trauma because I haven't developed that internal, like, here is where you take over kind of piece. It's interesting. Yeah. It is about the responsibility part, isn't it? At some point, mm-hmm. you, it kind of reminds me actually when I had my first baby and I was in hospital and I, I was very much like, oh my God, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. I remember the nurse coming in and like beginning to change the diaper. She said, can you pass me something? So I did. And then I started doing it and she left and I thought, oh, that was really clever. Sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> that was really clever. Mm-hmm. You were getting me mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, I like that. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to shift to the the healer question. I'm curious how you would or wouldn't potentially relate to the term healer in terms of what you do. Yeah, very much so. When people ask me what I do, I always say I return people to themselves. Hmm. That's what my job is. And I've definitely moved away from just being a psychotherapist. Coaching suits me so much more. But I have Mm -hmm. so many things that I do now with EFT and I do a lot of mindset work that healer does feel like a good description of what I do. It's healing our souls, healing the wounds that we're in. And how about the term wounded healer? I don't think that there's any, I don't think there's anybody (laughs) who's not a wounded healer. Like I don't think like to be a healer, 
you mm-hmm. are a wounded healer. I don't mm-hmm. think there's, I think it's impossible because mm-hmm. the experience of internal transformation and healing, the experience of being in such emotional pain, acute emotional pain mm-hmm. and recovering from it gives you such deep empathy that it manifests a desire to help prevent other people experience that or, or, mm-hmm. or help people come back from it. And right. I think we all, you probably have the same, like we have our therapeutic hooks. Like I have a couple of typical clients that mm-hmm. hook me. Yeah. One is the young teenage girl who's mm. completely oh. <laughs> lost that she hooks me. Mm-hmm. And one is the middle-aged man that's completely lost, which is my dad. Whenever I came across those clients, I'd always mm-hmm. be like, oh, I really want to fight for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's definitely an archetype that's like the men in my family that I'm always like, oh, my broken heart for you, that I'll definitely find myself in supervision talking about that client more, wanting to bend over backwards more. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about EFT too. I was trained in comprehensive energy psychology, but didn't do anything with it just because I was lazy. <laughs> so I'd, lo- I'd love to hear more about how you incorporate it and well, tell people what it is first. Yeah. Emotional freedom technique. It's also known as tapping. And the premise of it is that all negative emotions are due to a disruption in the body's energy system. So mm-hmm. it really links Chinese acupressure with modern psychology. And I came across it at least 15 years ago. And I was getting asked to do a lot of public speaking about my story. And I actually really enjoy public speaking. However, I would get so anxious and stage fright before going and speaking that I would like want to faint and, and run mm. away. Like, and, and every time I'd be like, why did I agree to do this? This is awful. I hate it. Like I want to mm. die. And I was at an event and I just happened to meet a woman and I was telling her the story. And she said, oh, I can help with that. I do EFT. And she kind of explained what it was. And I thought, that's nuts. Right. Um, especially as a clinical psychotherapist, it was very, I mean, this is a, over mm-hmm. 15 years ago. It's still seen as very woo, but it's mm-hmm. really becoming a lot more mainstream now. It is evidence-based. <laughs> yeah, it is evidence-based. There's more, mm-hmm. more, 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 more research coming out. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. in fact, the National Health Service and Kaiser, I believe in California, have both green-lighted it for treatment with PTSD with vets. Oh, awesome. So yeah, it's lots of evidence about it. But I don't think there was 15 years ago so much. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's tapping on acupressure points on your face and your body while kind of bringing to mind whatever it is is distressing you. Two sessions, she completely solved that for me. And I was mm-hmm. like, whoa. And then I went back for some other issues I had around food. And then I was like, this is amazing. I have to train and to do it. So I did the training and I continued with my clinical work I used it here and there with clients a little bit, but not hugely. And then a decade ago when I came to America and I couldn't work as a psychotherapist because my qualifications don't transfer, I thought, well, I can do EFT. So I started doing more and more. And then for me, it's just so effective with trauma. Now, what's great about EFT, and I love psychotherapy, there's always a place for that. However, with EFT, I can have a client who's like, say, sexual abuse trauma they do not want to spend weeks, months talking about that. They don't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. They want to do, They do not want to talk about it, but they do want it to go. Mm-hmm. With EFT, you can work with any kind of trauma and without the client having to really say much about it. In fact, mm-hmm. I've had clients who I don't even know what the thing was. Yep. They didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about it and it's resolved. Because mm-hmm. as long as you know about it, 
as long as you're mm-hmm. doing the tapping, the EFT works, you have to be very specific. You have to get to the very specific. Yeah. So it gets to root cause specific issues very quickly, very painlessly, and you can resolve them very quickly. So I use it more and more and more in my practice. I don't, I mean, most of my clients have some kind of childhood trauma of some kind, just past events that haunt them. So what happens is we can do uh, something called EFT uh, matrix re-imprinting, where we can't go back and change past events. But here's the thing that's amazing about it. We can go back and change how you feel about the past event. When we have a past event that was traumatic or difficult, whatever it is, we create meaning from that. That Mm -hmm. happened because I'm not good enough. That happened because I'm not worthy. That's what happens. Daddy shouted Mm -hmm. or hit me because I'm bad or whatever it is. So we can go back and change how you feel about that event, which then carries forward into the present. And that's what's been amazing Mm -hmm. about it. When you test it, like the next session, I'll test that with a client. Say, oh, can you tell me about that event you were telling me about when daddy shouted and hit at you? And if it's been resolved, the client will be, yeah, there's a vagueness. Like they can Mm -hmm. remember it but there's no emotional hook. When we talk about something from the past that's positive or negative, like I can tell you about the birth of my son, I can feel that emotion as I'm telling it to you. And we do that with negative things as well. So I can tell you about something awful that happened 20 years ago. And my body today, 20 years later, will be flooded with the exact same emotion. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that's what we change. And that's really transformational. So I'm very passionate about EFT. I think for a long time, I was not, I want to say I was slightly embarrassed about it because it does look strange. Mm -hmm, Yeah. However, it's really mainstreaming now and you can't Mm -hmm. deny the effects. The effects are so incredible. I'm doing it every morning at the moment at 9 a.m. And people are from all over the world are watching and saying they're feeling calmer, that it's shifting things. So it's a great modality. Mm -hmm. And since you mentioned meaning making, one of the questions I've been asking folks as I'm interviewing during the coronavirus is, how are you making meaning out of what's happening to all of us? And how is that informing the way that you're showing up? I do believe that somehow this is a manifestation of a massive change that many of Mm -hmm. us are desiring. I believe that it's some kind of reset of some kind. I hear people say when we go back to normal, and I don't believe that we will go back to how things were exactly. I'm looking at this with a big historical context, because, you know, it's like we're like, we have enjoyed 60 years of peace pretty much, more or less. I mean, I know I live in New York and we had 9-11. However, more or less, we've enjoyed 60 years of peace. Mm-hmm. We've enjoyed progress, technology progressing. I mean, incredible developments. We've not had, I think, globally a big challenge like mm-hmm. our ancestors have. So if you even go back 500 years to like the plague ravaging Europe, which was a terrible thing and it's nothing like the coronavirus, thank God. However, people survived humanity continued and rebuilt and grew. For instance, in England, the birth of the National Health Service came from the Second World War, where going through the Second Mm. World War, it was realized that universal health care was essential for the population. And that's why we have the National Health Service. So I believe very much that it has the possibility to change us for the better, that there's much we can take. And I I do feel that's something to do with the planet going, guys, Mm -hmm. stop just stop, Mm -hmm. you know. And I've got like, I want people to have enough food and work and abundance and joy and life. I do think we can look at doing that a bit differently to how we have been doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes me really hopeful about national health (laughs) care because that's been a long time coming for sure. 
I hope this is teaching us how it's about connection, isn't it? I mean, and I'm mm-hmm. British. We're in America. America's built on this notion of rugged individualism. Mm-hmm. Just do it on your own. And I think that this is showing us that it really matters that the yeah. $10 checkout girl has health care mm-hmm. so she can go take care of things and not mm-hmm. infect other people. Or It's just a basic human need, really. It's very hard for Europeans to understand American healthcare. <laughs> It's hard for many of us Americans to understand American healthcare. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm mindful that we're coming towards the end of the hour and want to give you an opportunity to share how people can find you and get in touch with you. Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at Love Soberful, on Facebook, Veronica Valley, or I have a free Facebook group called Soberful. And I have a subscription group called Soberful Life, which is a low cost group where I mentor and coach and do workshops and all of that kind of stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you really want to make sure listeners know? I think we touched on so much. I love being interviewed by a therapist because you've asked really... (laughs) Like get to the nub, but I think we covered everything. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I really just appreciate your time. And I think listeners are going to get a lot out of this too. You're welcome. It was great to be here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and learning more about Veronica and the work that she does. To find more information about her, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.